Before, it was not like this. It, it will be sporadic. Shops and businesses set on fire. It will be a kind of protest and it will be quelled in maybe a day or two. Chaos on the streets, roads blocked and stores looted. But now it's everywhere, in every corner of the country. It's never happened at this scale before. The it this journalist is referring to are the protests in Iswatini, a tiny country in southern Africa formerly known as Swaziland. Just over one million people live there, and for the past month, many of them have been protesting against the police, the king, and a dire economic situation. It's very likely you haven't heard a thing about this. The internet in Iswatini has been regularly shut down over the past few weeks, and journalists intimidated, arrested, and beaten. Today, you'll hear from one of them. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. For this story, we reached out to a reporter from the South African publication, New Frame. I am Tebelishe Mbuyisa, born and raised in Swatini, and I've been a journalist for at least a year with New Frame in Johannesburg. And how long have you been back in South Africa? Because I know that you were covering the protests in your home in Iswatini. I've been in South Africa for at least a month. From Eswatini, a magnificent and I traveled to a town in South Africa because we had to be attended to by a doctor. And then we rested and came back to Joburg. So I've been back in Joburg for at least a month. He glossed over it so quickly, you may not have realized. But he said he and his colleague Magnificent had to go to a doctor when they left Eswatini a month ago. That's because of a traumatic experience. And a heads up, this story contains accounts of graphic violence. It started on July 4th. We had just been to one Vincent Bembe's funeral who was 65 years old and he was shot by the police. He later died at the hospital. We went and spoke to his family, his brother specifically, about the circumstances around his death. And we spoke to eyewitnesses there and learned that the police were responsible for his death. Uh, we went to the funeral, we took some pictures, we got some audios and quickly left because we got the sense, or rather we felt, that we were being followed. On their way home from the funeral, the two journalists stopped to take pictures of another notable site, a brewery where protests earlier that week had escalated. Police had shot multiple protesters and the remnants of a fire were still clearly evident. But as they snapped some pictures, a soldier popped out of nowhere and commanded us to come over. We drove slowly towards him and, and then he picked through the car, wanted to know why we're taking pictures. We told him that we're journalists, that sort of thing. And then he ordered us to delete the pictures. For over an hour, the police kept them there on the side of the road. And then they demanded that we hand over our keys. They took their belongings. They demanded that we hand over our wallets, our IDs, everything we had on, in our possession. Questioned them. And two soldiers stood guard over us with their guns drawn. And then they commanded the journalists to get into the police van and go down to the station. 
There, the questioning resumed. They wanted to know who my father was, what he did. I told them he was a civil servant, that sort of thing. They wanted his number. The officers separated the journalists and then interrogated them about their jobs, their families, their connections. This went on for hours. And then things escalated all at once. The moment I mentioned the lawyer, you know, uh, I was just beaten right away. It was a slap on my face. Very rough, very, I don't know, it, it was unexpected the way it drew. And, and now I was in shock, like really shocked because you just don't, you, you never really ever expect to be beaten and especially for, for doing your work. So I'm in shock and this leading officer says, who do you think you are, you know, telling us about lawyers, asking lawyers here, who do you think you are? And the beatings continue and they are incessant and never ending. It slaps on the face specifically and uh, on, on, on parts of the body. But I felt that they were trained, you know, they were targeting certain places and it was really painful, you know, the stomach, rib cage, that sort of thing, just kicking me and, 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 and beating me. It was just going on and on and on and on, you know, uh, the beatings. Amidst all this violence, the New Frame journalists had had the presence of mind to get in touch with their employer, with a little help from their cellmates at the police station. One man had a cell phone, and they were able to sneak a message out to their editor back in South Africa. Hours later... A lawyer had been conducted by the New Frame lawyers, and then he came for us. And he was able to take the two journalists out of the country and to safety. I'm so sorry to hear this yeah. happen to you, and thank you for for resharing it for us. Yeah. I think the story is even more so striking because you were in Eswatini was. to cover the protests and aftermath of a case that is believed to be a police brutality case. That first happened in May. That is true. That is true. Yes. So can you briefly tell me about why you were there? What happened in May? Yes. The short of it is that a student at the University of Eswatini, Tabanigomonye, died sometime in May. And it is suspected that the police did it. 25-year-old Tabanigomonye had gone missing earlier in the month and was lost for days before his family found out he'd been in a car accident. When they confronted the police, they were given a series of contradicting and confusing statements that have led many people to believe the police were responsible for the student's death. So on the 17th of May, University of Eswatini students with other organizations and members of parliament uh, and members of the public marched from the University of Eswatini gates to the Sikotveni police station to demand accountability and also to condemn that specific station's officers' brutality and to demand that there be justice for Taban. His body was found with broken ribs and cracked skull. His car was also allegedly shot at. Police say uh, Nkomonye was involved in a car accident, but many say this is a police cover-up. They walked all the way and, and joined the MR3 highway. It's, it's an important highway, you know, one of the few we have in the country. 
and uh, there police decided to disperse them. So they drew tear gas, they started shooting you know, at the crowd using rubber bullets, but at close range. The police response to those protests spurred more protests, which in turn spurred more violence. Protesters have clashed with police for days, demanding democratic reforms in the kingdom formerly known as Swaziland. It's not a revolution yet, but in Swaziland, scenes like this were once unheard of. By the end of June, activists say security forces killed more than 20 people and they've arrested hundreds. And as the conflict has continued, the people's demands have evolved. On the 21st of May, a memorial service was held for Tabanigomonye and the police dispersed that with violence and sprayed tear gas on the mourners. Uh, and in that memorial service, two of the members of parliament who've been agitating for democratic reforms in general were present. After that, it specifically became a call for the election of a prime minister with executive powers, because as things stand, King Mswati has absolute powers. He controls the executive, he controls the legislature, he controls the judiciary as well. So that that became the call specifically. And that has been the call ever since. So what started out as protests against police brutality have now become about curbing the powers of King Mswati as well. He was coronated 35 years ago, when he was only 18 years old. Although my experience is short, and I'm new to this task. I have in my predecessors an example I can follow with certainty and confidence. God bless you all. Now King Imswati is one of the last absolute monarchs in the world, and he's famous for his lavish lifestyle. In 2019, King Mswati gifted his wife with custom Rolls Royce luxury vehicles worth around 10 million rands each. He and his 15 wives live in state-funded palaces. Meanwhile, according to the United Nations, nearly 60% of Imaswati live in poverty. So it's no surprise that the people's political anger has an economic component as well. And they've taken it out on the businesses within their reach. So when the riots and looting on shops happened at the very end of June this year, protesters primarily targeted shops and businesses that were seen as to be close associates of the king and the monarchy. That's Vito Laterza, an associate professor of development studies who has written about Iswatini. Sadly, another casualty of these attacks were South Asian shops, which ran basically more middle and small businesses across the country, especially retail stores and groceries. And this was in many ways the result of a a long-term campaign of xenophobic propaganda from the monarchy and the government itself. So for many years, major MPs close to the monarchy and major government figures and politicians be stoking this xenophobia, making people believe through campaigns also on the media, even commissions of inquiry in parliament, that South Asians were somehow taking over the country, which of course is not true. They're only one small part of the economy. So this was something that backfired and in some ways is still the responsibility of the royal regime. Vito says the people's frustrations might be misplaced at times, but they're still very real. 
unemployment, especially youth unemployment, has reached really worrying levels in the last few years and has worsened with the pandemic. But the issue is also that this is a very low-wage economy. Just to give you an example, a textile worker in one of the key industries makes less than 135 US dollars a month. This is much lower than even the national minimum wage in South Africa next door, where the cost of living is quite similar, which is about 235 US dollars per month. And South Africa is already known as a highly exploitative economy. And this is basically the root of the economic crisis that is now driving this mass protest. So Vito says Imaswati have been primed for a movement of this size for a while now. And as we heard at the very start of this episode, the protests lately have been bigger than we've ever seen in the country. King Imaswati himself couldn't ignore them. But many say that his response to the nation on July 16th left a lot to be desired. His address was essentially a middle finger, you know, to the citizens of Eswatini and to civil society and everyone who all along had been calling for the election of a prime minister. Because during that same address, he decided to announce a new prime minister. He actually said, I've decided that your new prime minister is Cleopas Jamini. So instead of giving people the power to elect their prime minister, the king doubled down on his right to appoint one. He also dismissed his critics as marijuana smokers and skirted the issue of human rights violations against protesters. I wanted to know how this felt for the citizens of Iswatini, and especially for journalists committed to covering this story on the ground. So you are from Aswatini. You grew up there. Yes. And the king has been in power your entire life. Of course, yes. We've seen protests against his rule before, most notably in 2011, when the complaints were very similar to what we're hearing today in the protests. Does this feel different at all? This is... It is different in many ways. It has never happened before that... This many people were killed, you know, the number of deaths has exceeded 70. And that's a figure endorsed by Amnesty International. So we've never seen this many deaths before. And also widespread protests, even in rural areas, where it is not just political parties demanding change or making noise. It is actually ordinary people in the streets now, not organized by political parties just expressing their grievances and uh, demanding accountability and also demanding democracy. What do you think that means for King Imswate's rule? Anything? It has, in fact, shaken him, I suppose, but there hasn't been any changes so far. We've seen the protests, we've seen the deaths, we've seen the casualties and all that, but the government now is just tightening control. There are so many people in jail still. I think the figure is over 600 people are in jail from the past few weeks. Many people are in hospitals still. I wonder how that makes you feel because you and your colleague were threatened at gunpoint. You were detained. You were assaulted by security forces in Eswatini. How are you now? How are you feeling? And and what are the circumstances of your complaint 
against those security forces. Even though the issue is uh, with new frame lawyers at the moment, it is my wish to sue the state of what happened. But I just feel, I know that calls for democracy will continue. And I want to participate as best I can in those calls. But as a journalist, I want to continue to do that. My work as a journalist, even in Eswatini, you know, despite the fact that it is dangerous for me. I left my SIM card in a certain SIM card and my sister continued using it. So she continued to receive calls or suspicious calls and I suspect it's the security forces still. And it hasn't been safe for me to return. So I haven't been able to return. But I still want to try participate in what's happening as best I can, but as a journalist. If there's one thing that you want the international community to take away from your reporting and the story of what happened to you while you were trying to report, what would that message be? It is that the people are on their own. And despite the atrocities, because there's been atrocities committed by the state on orders of the king, nothing has been done about that. The situation is direly. There's an air of disappointment that this didn't lead to much because at some point people really became hopeful that change was coming at last. But now it looks like it's been quelled and that the king and his government is being allowed by the international community to continue like business as usual. We've spoken to a number of lawyers and they hope to be able to to put together something, especially around the atrocities. And they hope that they might be able to hold the state accountable, even if they have to go to regional courts. But that's a process, that's quite a process. So the people are on their own. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilvey with Dina Kispe, Amy Walters, Nikin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Aya Al-Milek is our engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Benton is the Take Story editor, and Stacey Samuel is executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs>